nasty fucking character sheets. Welcome back to House of Bards, a podcast about role-playing games and all that stuff, ostensibly. Uh, as traditional, it's the QCon episode. It did happen quite some time ago. It did happen quite some time ago. About 5,000 years ago, QCon happened. Um, so I think I, I, to allay people's fears, people are like, oh, you know, uh, I'm delay, And they're doing the QCon episode now. Does that mean that, that Alex has lost interest in uh, removing the circle of eight? Well... Never fear, listeners. I am angrier about that than ever. <laughs> a thing happened in the intervening time that compounded that as an issue that I need to talk about the po- uh, on the podcast uh, at some indistinct point in the future. Obviously, I am Alex. You know about Beth, and uh, you have heard before on many episodes of the podcast. Uh, it's Maxi. Hey. So, I guess Maxi and I are going to talk about what we did this year because i i did i did go this time you remember that there was there was a uh, last year a qcon report which was just maxi because i had not gone but i did go this time and um i kind of feel like uh, this this experiment was my most ambitious yet which is a dangerous precedent to set but absolutely um, how many games did you run maxi was it just the one? Oh, i ran two games so um you may remember the previous um, experiments that I have done at QCon. Um, the general idea is that I will do multiple different, um, m- m- not multiple, diff- m- multiple games, multiple sessions throughout the weekend. And I like them to have some sort of connecting thread, if you like. So um, I did the, uh, the garden party. That was episode three of this podcast. God damn. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, episode three. Like, back when we first fucking started. And that was like three years ago. Um, and then I did uh, the, the... the I don't quite remember what I called it, but it, the, the one with the mountain. Um, where So, like, the garden party was obviously the same thing three times. Um, like, compounding itself into one confusing narrative with everybody from all the previous games, you know, running around trying to do their things. Um, and the second one was a sort of past, present, future thing where one group built the dungeon, one group populated it with treasure, and then one group went and looted it. Um, this time, I was like, well, I'm kind of pussyfooting around the idea of uh, time travel. Why not actually do that? And at the time that I had to submit my idea for QCon, I had been playing a lot of uh, subset games into the breach. Um, some of you may know subset as the people who made L- FTL. FTL is decently fun as a roguelike about escaping from a one hopes um, evil uh, rebellion movement in space, but it got a lot of um, got a lot of uh, criticism for its uh, unfair RNG. So Subset went away, and they came back with Into the Breach, which is a game about uh, giant robots fighting kaiju. And it only has one RNG mechanic, and it literally always works in your favour. I suppose the way that RNG works can also work not in your favour, but basically the game doesn't set you up to expect that you'll have it. 
So whenever it does like work in your favor, that's always a nice surprise um, rather than making you rely on it. Um, but one of the, the central conceits of um, Into the Breach is that it takes place in a time loop and that one of the technologies that the, um, that the, the mecha side have is if they fail, if they fuck up, then uh, a bunch of these insectoid um, monsters start coming out of the ground and they're like, oh shit, we have to go back in time to like, go back to the start and try and fix this. So they, you pick one of your pilots, if any survive, to send back in time, and then for the next game you get that pilot to pilot one of your three mecha um, with their current like level of um, experience and stuff like that. And that was sort of what I wanted to capture, because I thought I, I had an idea already. And so the year I did the, uh, the year I did the, the, um, the mountain, I felt bad because I did those three games and a traveler game. And that was four games. And it turned out that in terms of, um, uh, of the reward scheme that they have going on, three, three games is the magic number. Because if you do three games, you get your entrance fee to the con refunded. Because you're essentially staff at that point. And that's basically three games of anything that is run. So if you run um, an RPG, you get that. If you run a war game, you get that. I'm pretty sure if you end up like as a TO for like a Smash tournament or something, then, then you get that as well. Four games, I don't remember anything relevant being the case but five five games you get your t-shirt refunded if you ordered one and i thought well i love to do lots of games you know at qcon because i love you know i, I love like doing this for people and i love introducing people to DD and to tabletop role playing in general i could easily do five games and if i'm going to do that like why shouldn't i because then then i can get the t-shirt you know it's a free t-shirt it's great i almost fucking died don't do five games <laughs> <laughs> seriously guys seriously don't do five games five five games is too much uh, especially if they have like stuff that needs to be prepared for them if it's not literally exactly because again with the exception of the central conceit that ran through all of them these were the same game like i can't imagine what it would have been like if i'd been running five completely different things oh my god those. like it would have been awful but I had by that point sort of locked myself in because I realized that the conceit that I had in mind was only going to work if there were at minimum four games. And I was like, well, I'll do five then. Yeah, you were like, oh, okay, three. That's the magic number. And you were like, this needs four to work. And then you were like, why not do five? And then, like, and that was like your super ego talking and your id was like screaming, no, please, I, yeah. I can't, I can't do, we can't keep doing this, Alex. We can't. And then you almost died. So I mean, I, I imagine that if I didn't have like school going on, I maybe could do five because then I could have like done the prep work ahead of time. Yeah. Um, well, more ahead of time than I'd already done it because um, I would not have to prioritize school. Uh, but then again, I'd be working, so I don't know necessarily that that would happen either. Anyway, point is, um, what was the game? What was the game, Alex? It was called The Sanguine Sets. So... Um, the Sanguine Sets, as a as a concept, um, you folks know about this because um, there was there was one. Th th this is a this is a collection of magic items, um, and there was one of these collections 
in the magic shop that uh, that you've been to in my uh, regular Monday game. Uh, and it's it's an odd esoteric collection of items, all of which have something to do with blood. Like they they use hit points in the form of blood to achieve the magical thing that they do. And there was one of them in that magic shop. There was also one in a magic shop for the other concurrent campaign. And initially that happened because I, like, copied just... I was like, shit, I need magic items for this shop. Cool, yeah, nobody liked these in the in the other campaign, so sure, let's, let's put them over here. But I thought, that's a very weird... Let me, let me like, pull up the... Um, my home brewery account. So the sanguine, uh, it's called the Sanguine Suite here, and I think that that's probably what a lot of um, shops have taken to calling it. But it was it was called the Sanguine Set originally. Um, the Sanguine Suite consists of a velvet-lined walnut case containing three ornately designed gold vambraces and an agate fountain pen with a gold-plated nib. The vambraces are shaped such that only one can be worn on an arm, and only one uh, and only on a humanoid creature's left arm. Each vambrace has a symbol inset on a round depression above the wrist, which identifies it among its siblings. So, um, the three vambraces are the vambrace of sanguine speed, the vambrace of sanguine strength, and the vambrace of sanguine salvation. Uh, they're all wondrous items that are rare and that require attunement. Um, the rarity... The, they have a different rarity from the pen, but that's by and large a mechanical thing to have them interact differently with another item that could be bought in the same shop frequently because they're only ever distributed as part of these like these boxes these cases um so the vambraces all do very similar things so uh the vambrace of sanguine speed um concerns itself with uh initiative the vambrace of sanguine strength concerns itself with attack rolls and the vambrace of sanguine salvation concerns itself with saving throws but otherwise they all work the same way which is um, when you make the d20 roll in question, um, after you make that roll, but before the DM gives you the result, if you're wearing the Vambrace, you may give the roll plus X. And if you do, the Vambrace sh sinks sharp spikes into your skin and deals triangle X damage to you. So um, this, the whole Sanguine Suite has this theme of triangle numbers. So if you want to increase your, your result by one, you pay one hit point. If you want to increase it by two, you pay three, and if you want to increase it by three, you pay six, and so on, because that's how triangle numbers work. You know, you add together all of the like prior numbers, including the number that you mean. So it's like you know, one is one, but two plus one is three, three plus two plus one is six, and so on. So it's like the bigger a stretch you want to do, the more hit points it's going to cost you. Uh, and additionally, each time you use the feature after the first um, without uh, making a short rest, then you gain a point of exhaustion. So it's really... I, I've seen like a player use it to great use the, um, the strength vambrace to great success just to like make rolls that almost hit, hit, you know? Mm. Just be like, okay, every now and then, that's plus one. Which is the safe way of using it. Uh, the pen copies the it has a huge load of text which i'm not going to read um but essentially it copies out the enchantments on other magic items within some limits as enchantments that can be then cast but it uses your your blood to do that 
and uh, it reduces. I, I did. I did change this. I made it so that you take damage sufficient to reduce your hit points to a total equal to triangle X, where X is the rank of the copied item enchantment's rarity level in inverse order, excluding legendary, so very rare is one, rare is three, uncommon is six, common is ten, as if you were at full health. So it is entirely possible to kill yourself with the pen if you aren't at full health, but if you are at full health, you should never kill yourself with it. Um... The pen I, is mainly just like a flavor thing. I wasn't expecting people to actually use that. But I, I was like, okay, why are there two of these? Why, why? This is such a weird, esoteric collection of items. Why are there two of them? And why are they hundreds of miles away from each other? Mm. And what I came up with is the idea that these were all presents. Um, that they were goodie bags, essentially, from a party. And that all of the, the guests... At the at this 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 gathering, had received these 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 you know incredibly valuable uh, expensive collections of magical items in uh, you know in a in a, a walnut box with a uh, like uh, you know it's this lined with velvet and it's got these you know, really nice things in it. Uh, heard about what they did, um, said oh how lovely, and then immediately after they were out of the party went ew yeah and just like, <laughs> as soon as soon as they got home home like sold it to like the nearest magic shop or pawnbroker or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the... Immediately we're like, oh, God, okay, I'm going to go talk to those two weird kids who run the, the magic mm. shop uh, and see if they want this fucking gross, blood-sucking yeah. pen. <laughs> so then I thought, like, like my, what I was thinking when it was coming up to KeyCon was, what was that party like and what happened? <laughs> and this, this is where the sanguine sets came from. So, um, the idea is that, I don't, have we, have we talked about the, the, the Dr. Eva thing on the podcast before? I feel like we have. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that was in the combat episode beforehand. Oh, there's literally last episode, cool. Yeah. That island turned up again, not with, like, Dr. Eva's base on it, it was the other end of the island, but it was that island again, and on that island there was an enormous castle i think i repeatedly referred to it as a schloss because it was very much more supposed to be like an opulent house than necessarily a defensible um fortification mm-hmm. um but i was like okay this is where this is going to take place and there's um because i realized that the, as part of the conceit the players were going to get very high level and that would include um spellcasters so I wanted to avoid what had happened uh, a previous time that I had run a, a horror-based one-shot, which was uh, one of the players just deciding to teleport out of the story. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. I so mean, this, this... that's like, on, like not, not to shit on this player. I'm not shitting on you specifically. That's on them. Like, <laughs> I mean, no, that, like, from a character perspective, that was a perfectly normal thing no, to do. Yeah, absolutely. But like... But I couldn't allow it to happen. Yeah, because yeah. It would mess up the conceit. Yeah. So uh, I was like, okay, um, what, have, what, what tools do I have at my disposal? Because there are things that I've established in the setting, right? Mm. And although a lot of my players would never, like, they, they, they've never met me before. I'm probably never going to DM for them again before. I could just completely bullshit something up. But I don't want to do that because this is set in Dawn Sombre because I set all of my one-shots in Dawn Sombre because having a consistent world lets me, like, craft things quicker. And I wanted to... Well, first of all, I wanted to make it so that if Maxi was in one of my games, it wouldn't feel like I was just pulling shit out of my ass. But also I wanted to, like, 
not waste the experience of like coming up with concepts that could be used to limit player agency as and when needed. Yeah. Um, so, uh, on this island, there's this, there's this castle, and um, a bunch of different people, like hundreds of different people from across the world, have received invitations from a man calling himself Arcade Blanchard, uh, inviting them to come and uh, visit him for a party with uh, with gifts and shit to to celebrate his accomplishments in the field of, of magical science. And the thing that I made clear to the players was that while probably some of those people who received gifts were like, oh, yes, of course, Arcade Blanchard, you know, uh, my, my close friend and compatriot, um, or even, you know, Arcade Blanchard, I met him at wherever. It's like, your connection with Blanchard is tenuous at best. It's like, you most likely have never met him. If you have met him, then it's like you, you go and pull out the guest list of something that you were at six months ago and you realize that he was on it, but you can't recall ever meeting him, that sort of thing. But um, I made it so that they, they could travel by teleportation to a village to the west, and then there would be you know about a mile and a half uh, like carriage ride or walk up to, to this castle. Uh, and then the, the other conceit was that coming in, there would be a mana blizzard. Now, mana storms are a concept that I have great fun with in regular Dawn Sumber. Like, they turn up quite a lot, and uh, they have a bunch of different effects. Uh, they're a pliable de deus ex machina right at the moment, but as I keep using them, the number of things that they can do sort of gets, like, pinned down more. So I was like, okay, what happens in a mana blizzard? It's like, you cannot teleport out of it. If you're in, if you're in a building that is inside a mana blizzard, you cannot teleport away until the blizzard is gone. Um, otherwise, it's much like a like a mana storm as normal. It's like you don't really want to go out in it because you'll get more than your guideline daily recommendation uh, amount of, of mana, mana, yeah. And you probably you probably want to cover up mirrors uh, so that you don't get sucked into the realm of the doppelgangers uh, while the storm is happening. Um, so I was like, okay, that will be like the central. Most of the actual scenario will happen during this this blizzard. So I was like, okay, and and here I think is because I'm sure that you're gonna ask about uh, what we learned, Beth. Yeah. Uh, here here is I think my second mistake because my first mistake was deciding to do five games at all. My second mistake was making eight pregens. So I I had I had told the con that. Uh, as always, my games had a maximum number of players of six. But I always feel bad for the sixth player who comes to the table. Because oh, yeah. if I only have six pregens, then they just get what's left. Which, yeah, like, maybe that's not yeah. a character that they're interested in playing. So I always like to make eight pregens because then there's a choice of three for even the last person to come to the table. Yeah. And that, I mean, I guess... But the thing was, the conceit was already like pigeonholing players into characters anyway, which I'll talk about in a moment. So I feel like I could probably have got away with not doing that. Yeah. In all honesty. Um, so I feel like there are... Oh, yeah. Uh, the third mistake I made was not being able to count. So I actually made nine. This is like... you know... There's like this... There's like that, I see the health bar of Alex slowly going down, but it, it's like, you know, like in a Pokemon fight where you hurt yourself in confusion? Mm. <laughs> so you do fight. So, like, um, 
The thing is, though, I I already knew ahead of time that the five game thing was was a mistake. Um, <laughs> because I I like Alex. You also had to like DM a bunch more games after it, so it would be like five days oh, worth. Yes, yes, because this was like I I had to do this this for QCon, and that was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. On Monday, on our Monday game rotation, it was also my game. And then, because I had contrived it to be this way so that Maxie would be here, because Maxie had guested as part of my Tuesday game before, and I wanted her character to be there for the finale, I had arranged for that to also like happen on that Tuesday. Which meant that I had to do five straight days of DMing Dungeons & Dragons, which is astonishing, honestly. I mean, I had like the stuff for the, uh, the, the latter two games prepared, mostly, but... God. Yeah, so I like I pretty much knew that everything would be like super challenging. So um I am shocked though about the multiple extra character sheets. I understand why you did it, but I yeah, like I mean I think if I went back and did it again, I would probably make a lot of these same mistakes, but I would pay more attention to the number of like actual things that I was making. I I feel like that's a fixable problem. Like, I get worn out you when know? I have to DM on a Monday and I've DM'd on a Saturday as well. Like, I'm like, oh, I've done a Saturday. Oh, and I'll have to do a Monday as well. Oh, and then I'm playing on Sunday. Like, and, that wears me out. you have to out. be a player. That wears me out. And I'm only a player for one of them. Like, <laughs> Okay, um, I also have bad news. Uh, the bad news is that since learning this lesson, I have not become any better at maths. There were actually <laughs> ten. Oh, no. <laughs> so th there were 10 pre-generated characters which was two more than I wanted there to be and in all honesty four more than there needed to be and you might be listening to this and be like Alex that doesn't sound so bad as long as you have like the, the prep time to like do that ahead of time because you just make up like, this bunch of, of sheets and then, then you're done ah and you will see, as I expand upon this story, why that was not the case. Because in total, for each of these characters, I had to make... Uh, let me see. Characters. Wait, so you did ten characters... Five. Yeah, so you, you did ten character sheets. So you in total did 50, 50 character, character sheets. sheets. <laughs> yes, 50 character sheets. That's the cold I mean, open, is just you going 50 character sheets. That has to be yeah, the cold 50... open. Fucking character sheets, Five. and you oh. why I almost died. Like, for real, guys. Like, I don't... I feel like there might have been a period of, of being hospitalized beforehand, but I did almost die. Yeah, um, I, re I remember, like, seeing you um, in between sessions, like, writing up, and I came over to just go, like, Hey, and then I saw the look in your eyes, and I was like, I do not want to be near Alex right now. <laughs> 50 character right, sheets. So, um, 50 let's, character let's, sheets. Let's go through the... Because the way that these characters worked is that I made them all at level 1, and I had them prepared for level 5, which was going to be session 2. And I was like, okay the first person to play a character gets to name that character and decide some ancillary notions about what they're, what they're like. So I will go through the, the characters 
and I will tell you the names that they that they eventually ended up with. I cannot, unfortunately, remember which characters were necessarily in which sessions. Okay. But here, here are the ten characters. There was a tabaxi fighter from the Sakura Shogunate. Okay, um, yeah. At, at level one, a fighter, uh, eventually ranking up into a, a samurai, called mm. uh, Sasaki Hira. There was a an elvish druid from mm. the Empire called Gabrius Thistledown. Okay, good. Uh, there was a dwarvish paladin from Meslin called Grognar Silverbeard. Nice. A Yanti necromancer from the Pajeu Forest called Ling Chung. Mm -hmm. uh, a Goliath barbarian from the steppe, where all Goliaths are from, called Kayuthi Thunakalathi. A half-orc warlock from Varash called Morag Dune, with two U's. Nice. These are, these are some good fucking names these players came up with. They are, actually. Mm, but pretty I good. I like Morag Dune just because I like seeing, like... Trash ladies who like are just keeping their lives together enough being called Morag. I think it's a very like um, scrappy name. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just my particular upbringing. No, uh, no, there no. was a uh, a human sorcerer from the Gesh called Fi Quickerflame. Okay. Uh, a halfling rogue from the Lawfell called Darrow Helmet, mm -hmm. and a half elf bard from the Isle of Bells called Erdan. And then finally. There was a, uh, and this was where I got a little, uh, a little cheeky because I thought, you know, what if I were to use these players as a QA farm for my um, long untested homebrew content? So there was also a tiefling cleric of chaos from Kameka in Relend called Trust Nepho Venom. Nice. Nepho Venom. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Lots of different players had different ideas about how to play Trust, gotta say. Um, I'm sure they did. Because <laughs> that, so, that name and it's Trust, you're like, okay, okay. And then you're like, Nepho Venom, and you're like, okay, hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, those are those the, the ten characters. And I had on a few of the sheets written down, like, a sort of... In the features and traits box, because, oh, I, I'm going to talk a little bit later about like a, a great thing that, that went off perfectly. Um, but in the features and traits box, I had written down a sort of like a background for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, for Erdan, for instance, uh, it said, A boy entertainer from the Isle of Bells, cliffside capital of 17. You always yearned to travel for adventure. Paying your way with performance, you've so far only spent some time in the imperial port town of Irving Navali, but you feel sure this adventure will be the second of many to come. So, you know, there's Foreshadowing. That is who, is, who is like very new, um, mm. which makes sense for a level one character. Yeah. Um, for Truss, it said, You are a cleric of Sana, god queen of Kameka, one of the seven mobile cities that roam the desert country of Relend. Whilst the inhabitants of countries like Meslin and Varash must have faith in the attention of their distant exoplanar gods, your goddess is real and present on the material plane, and you have met her on at least one occasion. Sana is the goddess of fevered inspiration. Her followers are known for their drug use, odd behaviour, and production of eccentric designs and ideas, but are rarely truly incomprehensible or insane. So, from that, a, a bunch of different people came up with some very, like, diverse ways to play this character. Right. Mm. Um, 
the others I think are a bit too long to go through, but um, Sasaki was supposed to be a um, like a, a wandering, like a Ronin, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Beca- because uh, the the daimyo that he used to serve like no longer exists. Um, Gabrius was a dream cleric from Xanathar's Guide to uh, to Everything, and I love the dream cleric because I love the. I, d- I think they're less powerful than the other two like cleric types, but I I love that they're they have such like a weird vibe going on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Gabrius was just a sort of a scholar of dreams, if you like. Yeah. Um, Grognar was very simple. That's fair, yeah. A paladin of Hosa, the god of metalsmithing and mining, so, you know, stolid dwarf stock, mm-hmm. with a strong sense of right and wrong. Um, Ling Chung, uh, <laughs> Ling, Ling Chung turned to necromancy because on the edge of the Pajeo forest, you, um, you got to learn not to waste resources, and necromancy is a good way of uh, not doing that. I mean, a, ne- a necromancer's really just a very late doctor, if we think about it's, it. It's true. <laughs> well, they're, they're, just, they're just doing recycling. Yeah, it's just, but, yeah, it's uh, being green. That. What the fuck was I talking about? <laughs> um, uh, where all the different characters were from. And, right, and yes. The yeah. So, um, Morag, I love this about Morag. Like, um, Morag was... Morag's player, like, I think Morag was the last character to be defined, but Morag's player picked this up and ran with it, and I loved it. Uh, Morag is a shyster from the frozen nation of Varash. Uh, the bastard child of an orcish noble and a human peasant, she was an embarrassment, hidden away in childhood until the Everfall's king, ancient lord of the mansion of mirrors, dimension of the doppelgangers, spoke into her ear of unimaginable power. Now she seeks to travel about the fringes of high society, making a less than respectable fortune. Morag is a warlock of the Pact of the Toe. So, she's a great old one warlock, and she likes ripping off rich people. So, no surprise that she's come to this party. Phi <laughs> um, is a um, like a like a farmer's girl. I mean, if you come from the Gesh, you basically are a farmer or a miner because that's the only thing yeah, that yeah. happened there. Um, but uh, was framed for a crime that she didn't commit. Uh, oh, yeah, this was the other character with homebrew content, because she had my marked man background. Oh. Um, but yeah, she was framed for a crime that she didn't beget, uh, didn't commit, and um, because the the inhabitants of the Gesher are very paranoid people, she thought, even if I get exonerated, um, they'll reveal that I'm a wild magic sorcerer, which is like not really an allowed thing, so she ran mm. away. Uh, the rogue was a uh, a sort of What's, what am I thinking of here? Like a, like like a gentleman thief type. Yeah, yeah. Individual, mm. uh, like a like a, like a burglar, but I'd, like captures the public imagination type. Uh, thing. I'd like, say like raffles, like Lupin, like Lupin. Yeah, like yeah. I, like either of those actually. Yeah. Um, who? Because it wasn't Lup, it wasn't Lup, it, but it, it it was somebody French that I was thinking of. Arsène Lupin. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. I presume you were talking about Lupin the Third, though. Uh, I was kind of talking about them both, like. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, because because um, I completely forgot, but Lupin the Third is supposed to be um, his grandson. Um, grandson, right? Yeah, that's the Isn't law. That... Yeah, but yeah, that was that was the kind of, of person I was thinking of. So like, these are a cool collection of characters, and I love what a lot of the players did with them. It was great. So they all arrive at this. Um, this house together and i should point out that because they come from like a load of different places they don't know each other at all like the most contact that i allowed them to have was that they had spoken to each other on the walk up 
because few of them would have been rich enough to afford a like carriage. Uh, that's it. That's all the introduction that you have. And um, Kaothi, who uh, as a barbarian is like the second to like, he's the one I, I realize I, I missed. Um, he's like the, the, the he, he's a chieftain's son, but not a chieftain's firstborn. So he's sort of been put into like a um, ambassador role uh, on behalf of, of, of his mother, who is the chieftain. So it's kind of his job to come do this sort of thing. But uh, nevertheless, he's this enormous, scantily clad Goliath. Um, As all Goliaths uh, are. And many Goliaths are. Many Goliaths are. Goliaths so, are just... It's difficult to find clothes that big up in the mountains. Whenever it's... whenever Kyothi, like appeared, whenever somebody was playing Kyothi, I was like, okay, Kyothi is going to be the focal point for the next thing that happens, just because it's easier than changing the character every time. And also I found it kind of funny that this happens to Kyothi because he's he wasn't actually that unintelligent. Like he had an intelligence mm. of eleven, which is yeah, which is fine. Ab- it's, it's above average, fine. even ten is yeah. average in D anD D. So sure, I mean it's not like mechanically above average because those two have the same modifier. But no, yeah, yeah, but even you know, so, yeah. it's not it's not bad. Um, but I was just like he's inexperienced in the ways of the civilized folk, <laughs> well, the civilized folk. Civ- civilized. Yeah. That's a <laughs> Mm. the the static folks if you like yeah yeah um so yeah they 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 get there and um this is where i introduced one of my favorites i wanted to say stock characters but that's when like multiple different narrative entities have the same character because of the role they play in the story and it's like that's not what this is this is this is madame bananero um who you folks have met i think Mm. on a couple of occasions the the world's most powerful lesbian, yes. Madame <laughs> Vananero. <laughs> very recently declared the world's most powerful lesbian because in the narrative she cannot die. Ever. The the There are, the, there are lots the, of the, like un- functionally immortal beings, but she literally cannot die because she is the avatar of the deity of death. And she has forbidden yeah. her to enter the realm of the dead. So she is she, miracle dead. She is the unkillable like, girl. Torchwood. Yeah. And mm. I was like, well, if I have this this unkillable woman Obviously, she is a lesbian. Like, why yeah. would you not take that opportunity? Yeah, yeah. To 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 buck the the cinematic trend. Yeah, to be fair, I don't think a lot of lesbian characters have died this year on TV. So, oh, well, I think I, mean, I think we're okay. That's, that's I mean, there's not sure. a, there's not a lot of them left after the bloodbath that was twenty, like what, fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, all those shows are still going, and they don't have any lesbians in them anymore. Yeah, so they've got no lesbians to kill off. So, yeah. It's just the two one Winona Earp and who watches Winona Earp? No one, because it's shit. And if you're Griffin McElroy, your your lesbians don't die; they come back stronger. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true, which kind of undercuts the pathos of the end of your storyline, but nobody cares because they didn't die. Um. So yeah, she she appears and is uh she's been trying like a a, a servant is trying to convince her to stay. Is like, is is Madame certain? that uh, we cannot say anything to change her mind. And she's like, no, no, I'm absolutely done. I can't deal with this. This, No, I have other things to be doing. Um, I'll pick somebody else to... And it's clear that the, the, the servant doesn't actually understand what she's talking about. He's like, mm, but hey, I've got to try. That's, I get paid to retain sir's dinner guests, you know. And she's like, nope. Absolutely not staying. I'm going to get into my big uh, carriage here with my creepy um, coachman 
who just before we drive off will be revealed to be a skeleton. Uh, but first, I'm going to take this and thrust it into the uh, the chest of this big Goliath boy and say, Ah, you all look like strapping folks. You deal with it. Uh, and then I'm going to leave. And what was thrust into into Keothi's chest is a carriage clock. Now, thankfully, um, all of my players understood what a carriage clock was. But for those of you who are uninitiated, I suggest that you Google image search it because it is not a particularly difficult concept. They are small, generally speaking, rectangular clocks that stand on feet. Uh, they are designed to be principally portable, but they usually like stand on top of mantelpieces and places like that. You will definitely have seen one. Um, I, I, I mean, I, as, as a concept, this is ripped straight from Beth's campaign because it's a magic timepiece that goes back in time. That's fine. I stole it off, but I stole it off Bernard's watch, so it's it's, it's cool. It's true. It's like, but like, obviously the players didn't know that at the time because all of them they look at this this clock and they're like, it has thirteen figures on the faces uh, on on the face, and none of them are numbers that we recognize. And it has three hands, but none of them is. It's like we can't tell which one's the minute hand and the hour hand and the second hand. It's like this is a nonsense clock. Why do we have it? Um. The other thing that uh, they were made to notice, though, is that where a normal carriage clock has a, a hinge with a handle on it, this clock has a handle connected to a bead that then runs into a chain that extends into the clock. And it sort of, the entire clock sort of like hangs by tension from that chain. So they think, you know, oh, obviously this chain comes out of the clock at some point, but at the moment it doesn't. Um, so I was like, okay, that's, that's that. Mm. Uh, and they were like, okay, that was weird, but we don't seem to be getting any more information. So let's, I don't know, give the guy the clock, I guess, and let's go inside. Uh, and so each session there would be this, this, um, concept of you would go, you would go and like, you know, mill around with the other guests and figure that, okay, Arcade has invited, uh, a bunch of people, many of whom don't seem to actually know him, but have come anyway, because he's rich and offering presents, and they have nothing better to do. So, fair enough. Um, and then they go, they go to dinner, and I get to do like a big pontificating bit as Arcade, who, it struck me as like, like a sort of a vaguely meaner um, medieval from uh, World of Warcraft. Ah. God damn it! I don't understand World of Warcraft. Are you are you are you winning, kids? Are you winning? I mean, I understand I've never a lot. World of Warcraft, but Medivh was the central um, character, I guess, of the One Night in Karazhan Hearthstone expansion, which I have played. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. And in there fact, it's go. specifically that Medivh as opposed to the Medivh from regular uh, World of Warcraft, who was a little different mm. um, that that I was thinking of. Um, but this is the idea that, like, um, Arcade thinks a bit too much of himself. Mm. He's good as, like, a, 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 a thaumaturgical scientist, but maybe not as good as he thinks. Uh, so he, he, he announces, you know, what the, the party is about, and he shows the, the, everybody, everybody gets given a box containing the sanguine set. It's like, 
everybody gets one of these. And this is great because it gives me an excuse to distribute hundreds of these things um, out across the world into pawn shops, um, people's attics, the sea, probably, you know, some people going back on a boat being like, oh, oh, Look at this. how clumsy of me. It's Just... like everybody looks at these things, gets told what they do, and is like, oh, oh. gross? Yeah, just, just like some, some rich guy in a boat just looking at his, his mm. sanguine set and going, yeet, and just throwing it out into the ocean. But basically, Arcade is really excited that he can distribute these things, like, seemingly at horrendous expense to all of his um, guests. Mm. Uh, and sometimes, like, um, I think... Like maybe the the wizard and the bard would like try to examine these things, and I'm like, you can tell that they've been like magically duplicated, but there's been attempts made to hide that. So this is sort of him like flexing his muscles as a uh, as a as a mage, if you like. Mm. And all this time, um, Kaothi or whoever in the current narrative is standing in for Kaothi as recipient of the clock is is looking at the clock and pops open a, uh, the, the, a little panel in the back and finds a note which says, after dinner is done, go to the sunroom. Uh, and then it, has, it says, like, very important. And if you turn it over in the same, like, red ink that's different from the main message, it's like, all of you! <laughs> and, like, not having anything else to do with the like, oh, sure, I'll go to the sunroom, I guess. So um, I had, like, a, an internal map of the house. Uh, as it turns out, it was probably honestly quite like too big but i wanted to like have like a big map of the house this was i guess i don't know how many mistakes we're on now like five this would be the fifth one i mean you're on you're on 56 because you decided to do five games you made 50 character sheets and now we've made a really (laughs) big map i sure sure so so this this would be the 56th mistake Wait, that that, no, that implies the, 50, the 51st mistake because six of those character sheets would have been necessary. No, yeah, you're right, you're right. And also you would have to overrun at least four games. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm that's what harsh. I was going to say. Being harsh. I'm being harsh. I'm being harsh. No, I would have to run at least three games. So Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like come on. Give me, give me, yeah. give me Give me a little, a little credit. So we'll like. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I. 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 This is the 49th. This is the 49th. I, yeah. Sure. I. Dra- I drag you because I care. So. Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um. So they go to the sunroom, which is at the top of the house, because that's what a sunroom is. You take the sun in it. This is the middle of winter, so nobody's quite certain why they should be in the sunroom. It has a fireplace in it, but it's mostly still very cold because it's made of glass and metal and other conductive materials and they're like why the fuck are we up here like you found a note in a clock we don't know you what is this and then they hear a massive explosion from down in the house and they're like oh fuck what is this and i can tell you what they did not know at the time which is um arcade blanchard had a plan and part of what was involved in his plan was sucking all of his guests' souls into a big machine, a la the Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> wow. And the note, which had been left there by Madame Vananero, who they also they like also do not know who that is. They're like, there's this old woman in a big veil, and she gave us this clock, um, was to direct them to the one part of the house that would be outside the like sphere of magic that he was doing that with. So they are now though they will only find it out in time, 
the only surviving mortals in the entire house. So they go into this smoking room adjacently to be like, well, you know, what's, what's going on? And they find, I had so much fun with all of the villains in this scenario. You have no idea. It's, they were so good. Um, a, they find a pair of individuals called Harold and Petunia. And this, this would be a, um, an older, uh, sort of Colonel Mustard type, um, gentleman wearing brown with a, you know, a white spruce moustache, uh, and his wife wearing a dress that has been out of fashion for approximately two decades, mm-hmm. um, just lounging in, in the, uh, in the smoking room and then seeing them come in and, and... What was fun was I got to use the character, the voices that these characters would have normally, and yet say outrageously nonsensical stuff, like things that made it quite clear that something was going on. So it was like um, Harold, like immediately leading with, um, "Good God, Petunia! Mortals with their souls still in. Well, evidently something very horrible has gone wrong." And then Petunia would say, "Oh yes." Evidently, they were, for some reason, excluded. Which means that they've probably been in the sunroom for some time, Harold. They've been missing a lot of the party. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's very disappointing. It was a very nice party. There was good food, music, conversation. Absolutely. We'll have to show them some of the more interesting features of this house as we lay the smack down. <laughs> which is... Great, I love Harold and Petunia, like, because the what the party quickly discover as they enter initiative is that all of the vacated mortal bodies have been inhabited by various demons and devils. Uh, fiends is is indeed the word. Mm. Um, so although these fiends are using the names of the vessels that they're inhabiting and attempting to act as if they are in those bodies. It's not working because <laughs> they don't. It's not. That's not what people talk like. So uh, the party like fight and defeat Harold and Petunia. Um, I think the the idea was that Harold was a bone devil. So I was like, you, you will fight them as a human at level one because he doesn't he doesn't think that they're worth transforming for. Uh, and I think Petunia was a thorn devil. So even then, she was like, you know, sure, whatever. I'll just I'll do some spell casting. And so the, the party leave. Um, I don't remember. I think the first part, the first group got to the dining room, at which point they fought a bunch of like zombies. Um, but the idea was um, they would they would go through the house and they would find more and more about what was going on. And to prevent every scenario from working the same way, I gated off areas of the house behind a concept that I had already trialed in my Tuesday game, but which is still pretty damn stupid. Uh, I call it mind keys. Um, the idea being that these are constructions seemingly made out of like lines of light that you absorb and then you gain like the psychic power to open corresponding doors to that key. Um, and whenever I would have like a like a, a spellcaster examine the, these and be like, I was like, oh, mind keys, uh, and they'd be like, what are those? And I'm like, they were like a fad from ten years ago. And people stopped using them when they realized that, like, you can really only have, like, 20 mind keys in your brain before you go insane. Because you have to, like, hold these, like, this, this, like, 
psychic power that lets you do absolutely nothing but open specific locks without a key. It's like, that's not, that's not good. You don't want that. I love so that it's I, a magical fad. But like, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of like, oh, this is really stupid. So what if in narrative it were really stupid? <laughs> like, imagine having a mind key for your own diary. Hmm. Well, that would be like a sensible use because you only need one. And then it's like, you're the only person. I mean, we have like fingerprint recognition now and stuff like that. And like, you know, iris scanners and whatever. But it's the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, you're the only person who can who can open that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, I definitely wanted to give the impression that this is a very uncool thing. Because I'm like, it is. It's a stupid idea. But it fits the use case that I have. So I'm gonna, in narrative, make it a stupid idea. So um, there were different levels of, like, access. And the idea was that... Um, the players would not lose the keys that they collected. They wouldn't necessarily know at the beginning of the scenario that they had them, but they would not lose them. So uh, there were three, I think there were four levels of clearance. There's like areas of the house that everybody can go in. And these these clearance levels only appear after the, you know, big spirit magic thing. But there's areas of the house that everyone can go in. And then there's the green, yellow, and red clearance levels. And I used those to gate how powerful the equipment that the players could get access to was. Because this is another big part of what I was doing, is I wanted the players to pick up a lot of different magical items. Or not even sometimes just magical items, but like interesting items. Because it made the decision at the end of the scenario have a bit more weight to it. So um, they would they would go through, and I'm pretty sure that that's... Like, at the end of this scenario, they got the uh, the green key. They, they got it off this, like, sniveling little... Um, Toady servant who turned out to be a um, a moor demon or something. I was using the cobbled press tome of beasts for times when like official sources failed me on demons and things. Um, but they they had to fight like a bunch of zombies, which I like tweaked a little bit because they weren't actually like the living dead; they were soulless humans. But I was like, that was I think what drove home to me that the house probably didn't need to be as big as it was because I had two floors ready and they had never got downstairs. Like, they didn't get that far. They had to, like, you know, go go through. Um, there was a vampire called Stein who, like, if freed from being locked in by these, these magical locks, would explain the concept of the locks to them so they knew what they were looking for. Um, I believe he only became named Stein on, like, the penultimate game because nobody else asked his name but there you go um so the gist was at the end of each scenario and i've been hinting at this for a while the party fail Hmm. they they fail um and they for an inexplicable reason they see like a bunch of liches appearing in the air around them and then suddenly the uh the carriage clock comes to life it lights up the handle on the chain like pops out a little as the tension slackens and with nothing else to do and like surrounded by monsters way beyond their their power level whoever currently has the clock pulls the chain and i'm like okay so what's going to happen now is you're you are sending these characters back in time to the point that they were standing in the courtyard being given the clock and each of you may send one item that you have acquired since that point back in time. I mean, I can say you can send one one item, any item you liked, 
but the item won't be in the place where it would otherwise be acquired. So it's like if you send your own sword back, it's like, what the fuck have you even done? That's useless. Uh, and the idea was that uh, I wanted to see what items the players would choose to give to give to other other groups because I was like I was pretty sure that with D and D being a primarily collaborative game they would try and be helpful but given that a lot of them were not going to play in one of my games again it's like they they didn't need to they could send shitty things back you know no yeah yeah or nothing at all um, and I had like a bunch of uh, magic because this is my other favorite thing is like making up magic items so I had a bunch of like the stock ones that I had on hand but I also I remember asking um our discord and I asked hell to yeah beth to to come up with them and fair play to beth because beth came up with a little help from me i think i like refined some of the details afterwards but this was this was beth's idea um came up with quite possibly the best magic item you know because so you know there's a lot of toxic masculinity in the world the uh, fun thing about qcon is that a lot of the time uh at least this was my expectation was that a lot of my players would be 18 year old boys mm. and i was like oh this item is at low levels at the very least very very powerful mm. but so if you will beth can i can i read the item description absolutely go ahead all right so this is a wooden caddy like a like a sort of boat with a handle mm-hmm. um it contains 10 bottles of viscous brightly colored liquid and a card that is, um, like, you know, resting in a slot at the end of the caddy, which has instructions on it for use. Mm-hmm. So uh, it explains that all ten of these bottles contain nail polish. And that's the other thing that's on the caddy. There's a the little, like, um, brush that's in a, a little recess. Um, there are ten types. There, there are ten colours, and mm-hmm. each of the colours corresponds to a non-physical damage type. So light green is acid, cyan is cold, red is fire, yellow is lightning, black is necrotic, dark green is poison, purple is psychic, orange is radiant, dark blue is thunder, and grey is force. Applying the nail polish to one's nails infuses one's spells with magical power. When a spell the wearer casts deals damage, except bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing damage to a creature, that creature takes an additional 1d4 of a damage type chosen randomly between all the colours the caster is wearing. Uh, and I found actually that this is particularly powerful with spells like um, Magic Missile, for instance, mm-hmm. where because the spell could hit multiple targets, even if it doesn't, I have to treat each of the darts as a damage source. So you're potentially getting an additional d4 for each dart. Mm. It's ridiculously powerful. Helping another person apply the polish to their nails grants resistance to the last damage type applied for an hour. Regardless of which colours are applied, all bottles are exhausted by the application of the polish to a single individual's nails until the next dawn. Hmm. So you get a bonus if you're a spellcaster for getting your nails done, and you get a bonus potentially as a non-spellcaster for helping the spellcaster put the polish on. And I was like, this is a very, very powerful item, and it is gonna bomb. And I was pleasantly surprised that it got sent back every single time. Of course it did, because it's a very powerful item. <laughs> people love this item. They love it so much. And it's it was fun, because it, it built like this... Because um, I was like... It was generally either the warlock or the sorcerer mm. who got it. Because I was that was... 
I mean, it, it's it's it's, it's made for them basically. It's it's made for Spark. It is basically. Yeah, I, I I think I did rule that the anti uh, necromancer had, if not fingernails, fingernail analogs, mm. but um, he wasn't played a lot. So no. it was primarily those two, and actually between those, mainly five, because five was played a lot. The, yeah. the sorcerer. But it was fun because their player would then be like, okay, who am I picking to apply these? Because like these these are the colors that I want, and it was mostly like either they chose red goes in every slot mm. or more commonly they were like there are 10 colors i have 10 fingers yeah come on i'm a world magic sorcerer rolling on random tables is what i do <laughs> and i'm like cool sure let's do it um so yeah it, it was fun seeing who they would pick as well like, yeah. not just what colors it was like you know who, who am i picking to get this this ancillary bonus um like that it was it was interesting because it was nice you know? Yeah. And and they they all took it really seriously. Well, not really seriously, because, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a game. But, like, they, they no, nobody was like, oh, you know, this is a show. Like, okay, this is a cool item. It gives us two bonuses, and it makes perfect sense yeah. to, sure, who's you? Come and do my nails. Yeah. And I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, great. That's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. And um, I'm, I like, and, you know, Alex's like, oh, I, I don't know that they might, they might not be that into it and I was like they'll be into it well I mean this I don't is, I, didn't, is... I didn't care like yeah, yeah. I, I was prepared to put this item no, in yeah. because it was funny but I was like, like it would either be a cool item or it would be unanimously rejected by the group and I would get to like essentially like privately mock them yeah yeah for, for, for their weakness no know? but you know, um, we we, we got, we got this good item. you know we got to hand it to the, these these Gen Z Z kids they're a lot more comfortable with hmm. I mean I the other things I should mention were there was a significantly larger proportion of um, women who came to my games than I would have necessarily yeah. been expecting. Yeah. And also, I think it helped a lot of these guys, um, particularly those who were playing Fi, mm. that Fi had been defined by the first person to play her as being a woman. Mm. So I think... I don't want to get too cynical about it, but I kind of feel like that may have made it less weird for them. They were like, oh, that's, yeah. sure, let's, let's do that. Which was a little disappointing but yeah. I, it wasn't always her yeah i mean like, look the, I, I love this item so much and we've explained it oh thoroughly. yeah this is if, like if you want to use it in, in your own games at home because i'm going to put it in my game i love this item so much and i it, i know it's going to make it yeah. way over to like dance on but it's going to get snapped up super quick um mm-hmm. I, yeah. If you want to use it in your own game, I I would be more than flattered. It, it's, please do. Please. And if you have like a fun story about springing it on, like on an unsuspecting group of players, please tell us because it would be very yeah funny. I want I mean, to know. But if you have like a heartwarming story about them, like you know, instantly taking to this item and like, because I think that's the, the the thing I love about it is it it's not just like a fun joke to play on people who are maybe insecure in yeah. their masculinity. It's also like a bonding exercise. It is. It's it's cute as hell. It's like, yeah, it's like who who am I gonna pick to to get this this like extra bonus? Yeah, and now I know I brainstormed a lot of other makeup items. There was a, in fact I did. Yeah, try I, make a I was set. like I, the the major problem I had with those was I was like mm. I don't want to have lots of makeup items because that feels pointed. Yeah, unless they're like a matched set and there's some bonus for having all of them. Yeah, but that doesn't really fit with mechanically. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that would happen, is the problem. Like, I don't yeah. think they would get them all. 
it's like they'd get more than one and then they'd be confused but yeah. like they wouldn't get all of them because the the map was so large and they got to explore so little of it before time was up yeah so i was like okay let's let's restrict ourselves to this one really good item yeah and no it got sent back every single time like they were like no this is super good yeah <laughs> we, we will we will we will send it back F- future me is gonna need this past me yeah. is gonna need yeah so um, the idea was that every every new game, um, with the exception, I guess, of the first two uh, second game transition where it was four levels, the players leveled up five levels. And this is where I say that, like, where I like explain that the the whole really four games minimum works for this thing because otherwise you start getting into like a position where it's too many levels. It's like the players need to be level twenty at the end of the mm. uh, in, in the final game, but. Yeah. How many games can I get away with this in? Yeah. You know, what's the minimum number of loops that I can Groundhog Day these people? Which apparently, if you're making a Groundhog Day parody in any sort of medium, is like the thing that you need to think about. It's like, how, what, what is the minimum number of loops that I can get this point driven home in? Yeah. Because it will be boring otherwise. Um, so I guess you could abstract away the idea that like, no, you actually can't because they, uh, no. It's a, yeah, they, they just like level up like, so... They were level five in the second, the second yeah. game, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the stuff behind the green doors is like you know geared to for you to fight if you're level five, and the, the they they would they would meet Harold and Petunia again, mm-hmm. and the the fun thing about this is um, until the end of the of the of the experiment, the player characters never remember that they're rewinding time, mm. like they just get these items in like a big clattering pile. Um, on the on the cobbles, like when they're in the courtyard the first time, like where the fuck did these come from? I we better take them, I guess. Mm. Um, in addition to this weird clock gift that we got, but the fiends start remembering like a couple of cycles in. Mm. Um, and in particular, there was a an individual called Clarence. <laughs> Clarence is, in all honesty probably my favorite villain that i've ever done like i love clarence so much clarence is a cambion which um is in the monster manual they're sort of like half demons which i didn't really like so i i made them more like um if you imagine like like a tiefling is a human that's got some like had some like demon in them Mm. somewhere up the up the the family tree Mm. Like a cambion is the opposite thing. A cambion is like a a demon has some human in them. Like 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 yeah, like a like a descendant of a fiendish lineage who has been like tainted by mortal blood. Right. Okay. And as I was, because I'd never done anything with um with cambions before, um, but as I was like you know um playing uh playing Clarence as a as a character, I was building up this mythology around cambians and what they were going to be like in my setting and i was like cambians are like they're wet and they're sniveling and they their whole thing is to try and curry favor with more powerful fiends by being ideas men like they come up with like plans for like horrendous um schemes to 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 pull in in the realm of of fiendish evil and then they they go around like little um, entrepreneurs trying to pitch those schemes to like fiendish beings that are actually powerful enough to 
make it happen. So like a contestant from The Apprentice, then? I mean, like, kind of, except they try not to compete with each other, so it's more <laughs> like um, they're making, like, elevator pitches to Bill Gates. Okay. You know, um, which, for Clarence, like, so the reason he's called Clarence is because of a really fucking stupid joke, and the joke is that he has hold of the red key. Mm-hmm. So if you want the highest level of clearance, you go to Clarence. <laughs> but also I feel like Clarence is just an inherently petulant sounding name. It is, isn't it? Which like... I think like influenced my like reasons for playing him this way. So Clarence, and God, I've just re- I know that I'm like talking on like this is a very difficult concept to explain top down mm. without like taking you through the whole like 15 hours of playtime. Um, Clarence's whole deal is that he's set this whole thing up, mm. or so he thinks. Mm. His, his idea was there's a bunch of um, demi-liches under the, uh, uh, like, like in, in the Well of Horrors in Varash, and all they need to come out and take over the world is souls, because there aren't any souls down there, so they basically all like wasted away to nothing. If we were to get a fuck ton of souls in one place and then just send them over, and we could like teleport these liches back, and then as long as we had like whoever it was that we were making do this, we like made him a lich as well. Like if he was like a, like a powerful necromancer who was thinking of doing that anyway, we could just be like, hey, these liches are liches, but they became that way naturally um, by like a process called the Lich Event Horizon. So they're not as powerful as liches who became that way through like the force of magical science. Mm-hmm. So you could totally be their lich king and then just. <laughs> you know, take over the world of mortals. And um, Clarence's eventual plan is that the liches will exterminate all mortal life on the material plane, which is why he's so anxious for this plan to work, because in order to... In order to find a buyer, basically, he's had to betray the regular fiendish houses and pitch this to Ataramaxu, the demon lord of death, who is in exile and not well liked by... Skedrenth, the god of demons, or any of the other, like, devilish or demonic houses. So, Clarence's thing is, like, if this doesn't work, I'm fucked. Because <laughs> everyone will know that I threw my lot in with the Taramaxu, as well as, like, all of these, you know, ancillary demons. So, Clarence is, by the time he first meets the party, already really fucking annoyed. Like, horrendously annoyed. Because he more so than they, is, like, very good at figuring out when someone is rewinding time. It's just, I was like, sure, that's that's a, an ability that Clarence naturally has. Mm. And so, like, when he, when he, like, when they find him, he's like, what the fuck? Stop doing this! Because I can't, I can't do anything about that. I'm going to kill you before you get the chance to do that again, because you're fucking up my plan, you know? And by this point, like, the players have already met, like, the second Keykeeper before Clarence, and another, um, a Tanaruk, actually, which is like a demonic orc thing, Hmm. uh, hiding inside a 16-year-old maidservant called Alice, (laughs) and, you know, bursting forth in a cloud of of, of viscera, uh, and stuff like that. Because, you know, we want all that good doom shit. Yeah, yeah. But Clarence is, like, massively annoyed, and the... I think the first party that met him uh, defeated him by banishing him. And he's like, what? No, I don't have a counter to that. Ah." And of course, because he's a fiend, 
Like, Banishment is already a very powerful spell, but if you use it on an exoplanar being, they don't come back, because they get sent to the plane that they came from originally, and now, now they're stuck. You know, you banish something terrestrial, it's going to come back in, like, six minutes or whatever. You know, like, one minute. But you banish, like, a, a fey being, or a demon, or, like, an elemental, they're gone for good. So he, he drops the key. And then I was like, on the subsequent run-throughs, of which there were two, uh, I was like, okay, so get that, that, that was game number three. Game number four, I was like, okay, um, they have all levels of clearance now, so they're able to access these really powerful magic items. I think at this point, Clarence should come back into the story. Because mm. obviously, if this is the story that I've like come up with for him, he's not going to stop at being defeated once. Because mm. they rewound time, right? So he's now back in the house. Mm. So Clarence... Um, got Harold, the Bone Devil, and Alice the Tannerook together and laid a trap for the party in the uh, in the Turkish bath, which I presume in-universe was called something else, because, you know, Turkey. The maps that I was using were taken from, like, actual castle maps, which, like, this particular castle had a Turkish bath. Sue me. And... That was really the conclusion of that scenario. Like, I ended up actually having to um, rush through that fight because I didn't realise, like, how quickly that, uh, that particular session would be over. Um, and that was the session that you were in, wasn't it, Maxie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at that, at that point, I was like, okay, session five is different because session five is the player characters are 20th level and this time they remember everything. I decided that in order to make sure that they didn't fuck themselves, I would wait until the sunroom before they remembered everything. But as soon as that happened, I was like, it just jogs your memory and you, you remember everything that happened. You remember that you've um, rewound time four times, you know? Um, and you remember what Arcade has presumably done. You remember Clarence and the other fiends. And... That session was about them trying to find where Arcade was so that they could fight him. And I think they eventually beat it out of the um, the little, like, more demon guy who's, like, scuttling about. So uh, they, they go down to the basement because they were like, okay, he's in the basement. And they find Arcade and Clarence. And this is where Clarence... Clarence has gone to warn Arcade because he's realised that the party are getting more and more powerful each time they reset. So he's like, fuck, they're coming for Arcade next. I've got to go and warn him. And they, to their credit, the party ended this fight so fast that I didn't have a chance to like put this part in. But Arcade knew that Clarence was manipulating him. <laughs> and, would, and would have said, like, I'm not going to exterminate all mortal life, Clarence. I know that's what you want me to do. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule over it with my army of liches, but fuck you and your demon lore. I don't care. I'm Arcade Blanchard. I'm like the most powerful wizard in the world. <laughs> he he isn't, but he that's what he thinks he is. But he has this this big like um, glass sphere that he's containing all of the the souls in. That's the the soul sucking machine. And then I'm like, okay, most of the most of the session is gonna be this fight with Blanchard. You gotta you gotta fight him, which they did. And I think there were only three of them. I think the the final group because definitely um, most of the other groups like I had like five or six people but this one ended up only having three and i'm pretty sure that it was um trust trust the cleric mm -hmm. uh 
Sasaki the samurai and uh, Fai the sorcerer. And I think the rogue might initially have been there, but then the player had to leave because he was sick. So I was like, okay, that's that's the last three. Um, which is fair, actually, because those are great characters. Um, so they, they open the fight and Fai immediately gets... This was the thing, right? The fourth and fifth sessions happened on the same day and I had not had time to make 20th level pregens. So to them, to, to the players who turned up for the fifth game, I was like, this entire session is going to be one fight. Can you level up these 15th level characters to 20th level? And so the fun thing about that is, as opposed to me setting up pregens like normally, like I would, they got to choose all of the shit that they got that was different to 20th level. Now, they didn't get to choose, like, abilities and things, because, um, again, I, don't let me forget about the ability thing, because I will talk about it, but it's it's ancillary to, like, what I want to talk about at the moment. Um, they, what, what, what is important here is, in terms of ninth level spells, Fi's player got to choose which one she got. And he chose, if I can remember it correctly, is that Meteor Swarm. Okay. Because he'd taken very much into the idea that Fi is a pyromaniac. Right, yeah. You know? Um, and I was like, Meteor Swarm? Because I had said, right, I had said um, specifically about this, because I knew that two players were playing spellcasters, I was like, you have access to 20th level spells. You get to choose what the 20th level spells that you know are. Tell me if you are going to pick one of these two spells, and the two spells that I told them, like, tell me, like, you're allowed to pick these, but tell me if you're going to pick them, are Wish and Time Stop. Because Wish mm. has to have some limits on it in a, like, gimmick game like this. Because yeah. otherwise, you're like, I wish Arcade Blanchard had never done any of this. And yeah. you're like, cool, you've, you've fixed everything. You've done it. Well done. You know? <laughs> It's like, basically, the, the wish thing is like me warning the players, like, I have final say on what you can and can't wish for, but if I reject something, you can you can wish again. Yeah. You can keep wishing until you get something you're allowed, basically. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let you waste your wish. Time Stop, I wanted players to tell me about, because Time Stop sucks ass. It's a terrible spell, and it does almost nothing. Mm. Uh, and so I, what I wanted to tell them is, I have a homebrew, like, replacement for Time Stop that I think works better and is based on the cool as fuck uh, intro to the Destiny 2 uh, Curse of Osiris DLC, which incidentally was much more interesting than the actual DLC was. Mm -hmm. So, but no, turns out they didn't pick either of those. Instead, the sorcerer picked Meteor Swarm, which just fucking leveled the playing field, if I'm quite honest, because like, <laughs> it was such a big arena that they could quite easily catch Clarence and um, and Arcade in the Meteor Swarm and nobody else. And the only um, the only like casualty would be the Soul Machine. Yeah. So Clarence got fucking killed, and like in the in the fourth session, Clarence had also been banished because like the cleric knows banishment, and banishment is an easy way of like getting rid of a specific powerful. Th threat especially if it's exoplanar so as he's being like pummeled to actual death by meteors he's like well at least i didn't get banished this time yeah there's always a bright side clarence yeah mm. but he, he didn't say it in that voice because it's like oh clarence clarence talks like this no he's a he's a geezer 
Or he sounds. He sounds. He tries like a, to be a geezer. He sounds, he sounds like a fucking bloodborne NPC. He sounds like Patches. Actually, I was thinking of Patches the entire fucking time. I was like, this guy should be a dick, and like not trustworthy. Arcade, meanwhile, um, just pontificates a lot like this, uh, and and like Arcade was left alive because as a lich he had. Oh yeah, Arcade's a lich. Like yeah, 20th yeah. Twentieth level in yeah. his in his lair lich. So twenty third level, I think. Yeah. Um, and he's he's taking his lair actions and everything. So he's like, well, uh, he, he I'm because because I, I was like, oh shit, I need to communicate the the puzzle solution because ba- basically, um, this was not really necessarily a puzzle solution so much because they would never know. They would never. It, it involved pieces of the puzzle that I had had no reason to mention up until this point. And, you know, long-standing players in my games would know about them, but I was like, no, I've got to give them a... I've got to give them a fighting chance. So I basically had him pontificate how they... about how they'd, like, forced their way down into his inner sanctum by extorting his minions and were fighting him one-on-one and had destroyed the soul machine. And he's like, this is all very weird. Why would you do it this way, you know? There were so if you wanted to stop me, there were so many ways that you could have you could have done this. You could have, um, for instance, taken an important part of the machine, like the Star Roman that that burns at the center of it, and it would not have worked, and I would not have been able to, to do the thing that I was going to do. Um, and then um, I had him use what was the the so he ha- he has legendary actions, but he also has lair actions, and those are separate things. And I'm pretty sure that one of his lair actions is relevant. Oh, yeah. Um, he would, like, target people and, like, make them take uh, necrotic damage on a failed constitution throw. And I just flavoured that, that it was, like, the souls from the soul machine just, like, passing through them. Oh, no, that was the, the spirits of creatures that died in its lair. These apparitions materialise and attack one creature. Yeah, okay, that one. So, Fi was almost fucking dead, because he just immediately was like, No, you don't get to do that again. And as a legendary action, he can use Paralyzing Touch. And I don't remember how, but the Cleric Trust got right up next to him. I think it was that he got, like, 30 feet in and, like, Arcade moved towards him and then, like, used the uh, legendary action at the end of somebody else's turn. So here's the thing about the Chaos Cleric homebrew. Uh, I've, I think, um, tried to, like, balance it a little bit more recently because um, I feel like the uh, the Wild... The wild redirection ability is too powerful. Currently, the cleric can use it a number of times equal to their wisdom modifier, like a bunch of other cleric um, like abilities. I kind of feel like I want to make it a once per short rest thing, or maybe even once per long rest. So the way that wild redirection works is from first level, when a creature within five feet of you that you can see attempts to make an attack against you, you can use your reaction to teleport the attacker to within five feet of a friendly creature making its attack against that creature instead. And that's friendly to you, not friendly to the monster. So you're, you're basically, like, chucking someone else in it. Presumably the tank. Uh, you must choose to use this ability before the DM reveals whether the attacking creature would hit you. You can use this feature a number of times even for your wisdom modifier a minimum of once. Yeah, I think maybe this needs to be, like, a once-per-rest thing. Um, especially since at sixth level you get an ability called vortex of redirection at sixth level you can use your wild redirection ability on any creature making any kind of attack against you you may also now use the ability at any time during that creature's attack provided you use it before either the creature deals damage to you or the creature's turn ends 
You may now also redirect the attacking creature to attack other enemies and neutral targets, as well as targets friendly to you. All other aspects of the wild redirection ability remain the same. So, literally all that he does is like, hmm, no, you're going to attempt a paralyzing touch the samurai instead. And, no, not the samurai, the bard. Uh, the bard? No, the bard wasn't there. It must have been the samurai. Yeah. The, 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 which he fails, because the samurai made the, uh, the saving throw against his paralyzing touch ability. Saving throw? No, it's a to hit. He didn't hit, basically, is the point. But now, Arcade is 30 feet away from the cleric and right next to the samurai. And the, for those of you who haven't read Xanathar's Guide to Everything, the thing that samurai are very good at is attacking a lot. <laughs> the point was, the samurai had the next turn and just fucking murdered him. Just kept on hitting him until he died. And the fun thing about this was, like, the uh, the cleric and samurai players had actually played those characters before and had come back because they were like, we have to know, we have to know how it ends. And I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wove a story so good that these players came back. Mm. Uh, and so they, they were overjoyed at being, at being able to just straight up kill Arcade. And I was like, well, that's cool, but Arcade told you that you basically can't save the people whose souls you stole, you know, because you destroyed the soul machine. They... They can't be put back. You've killed a fuck ton of people. And bless them, they were intelligent enough to figure out what he'd said before. And they were like, hey, if we like loot, look through the, the, the rubble, basically, and we find the Star Omen, this like tiny tiger eye type gem, and we send that back in time, he can't use the machine, right? And I'm like, well, you think so? You think that's how it works? So they, they did that. They sent it back in time. And ta-da! It worked. Because that was what I had been like laying for them. Uh, and so they, because then, then I was like, well, the problem now is that you remember all of the times that you rewound time, which means that you have to go to this party and like eat at this dinner for the sixth time. And, and now you remember how interminable it was the first five times. But Blanchard goes away and then eventually comes back and he's just really disappointed because he can't get his machine to work. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm ready my party. I'm sad it didn't work. And everybody goes home. And um, I actually had it that, like, when they're given the clock by uh, by Madame Vananero, they actually just give it back immediately. And it's like, no, no, we're done. We did it. Uh, and she's like, wait, really? And they're like, yep, totally sorted. And she's like, oh, right, you're all, like, beefed as fuck. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I was just, just going to, like, you know, uh, trust you based on that. But obviously you've been, how, how many cycles did it take you? And they were like, uh, six. And she's like, that's... That's all right, uh, and offered to like let them join, uh, join not join the knitting circle, but like become associates of it, which I thought was a fun ending for that. But I was like, okay, cool. Um, this time travel concept I think really works. It's fun, um, and it meant that like some of the players had a an investment in what happened in the game, like far beyond their involvement. Uh, necessarily, some of the characters acted a little bit weird because obviously, if you have a different actor playing the character every time. Like, it's going to be different. Like, people had very different interpretations of what trust should be like, and I think a couple of different interpretations of what Morag should be like. Um, Kaothi was generally played as kind, uh, but not particularly intelligent, which is, like, fine. That's... sure. You know? Um, beyond that, it's like... It was fun, and it was good, and I almost died. Fuck ever doing that again. <laughs> but it was a grand extravaganza, and I feel like... I think I mentioned this before, but I can't keep thinking that I have to 
do bigger and better than last time. Because that's not sustainable. And I think if I've gone to the point of introducing the concept of actual time travel into the setting, then that's probably as far as we can go with that. But I had a lot of fun, and I like a lot of these uh, these items. Uh, some of them were repeats from, from elsewhere. Um, one that was particularly helpful is called the Buffing Bullhorn, which, when sounded, upgrades all normal or plus X weapons to the next vanilla magic weapon tier for the next minute um, that are like within a 10-foot radius of the person using the, the bullhorn. Which is just helpful for like if you don't have a magic item already, a magic weapon, it's going to be like difficult to actually fucking fight a lot of these things because they're like immune to non-magical damage. So yeah, um, there was also the, th the thirsting blade, which has just turned up in uh, the Monday campaign as well in Zell's hands, and Zella's not happy with it. <laughs> no, she fucking hates it. It's horrible, evil weapon, and she's never going to use it. No, it, it was not particularly complicated, but again, like like I think we say, we say every time, it, this is not... You can put a lot of complex shit into a tournament scenario. Well, not a tournament scenario, because this, this is not a tournament scenario, mm -hmm. but like a, like a convention scenario, provided you understand that you're probably going to be the only person who actually appreciates it, which is fine. Like, I'm fine with doing that, because it feels like taking more of an ownership over the the, the material which I need to properly get into character. But I, it was it was fun. I don't know that there was necessarily like a lot of artistic merit to, to what happened, uh, if you'd say. So that, that was me. That was what I did over Cubone. 